This is Tomorrow Today, the rise of cybercrime with Paul Solosky. In 2016, Tom Wainwright, the tech and media editor for The Economist, wrote an absolutely fascinating book titled Narconomics, How to Run a Drug Cartel. If you haven't read it yet, I highly recommend it. It's a ripping good read. In the book, Wainwright makes the point that in many ways, drugs are a business like any other. And the drug lords who run them have learned quite a bit from studying big businesses. Think about it. If you've ever watched even one episode of Breaking Bad, you know that a drug kingpin has to contend with many of the same challenges as any other business. Product differentiation, branding, marketing, logistics, risk management. Well, in writing the book, Wainwright actually interviewed several cartel bosses to try to figure out how they thrive and, you know, let's face it, even survive in the $300 billion a year illegal drug business. What he found is that they essentially took a page from the playbooks of some of the biggest companies on earth, including Walmart, McDonald's, and Coca-Cola. Wainwright came to realize that while these guys are evil, they're not dumb. They know that the same things that make multinational companies successful in any other industry can also work for them. Economies of scale, division of labor, co-opetition, and collusion. Uh, You know, I I used to teach strategy to MBA students, and I started out my cyber career as a hacker back in the early 80s. So that book got me thinking, how long will it be before cyber criminals start to form their own cartels? How long before we see organized cybercrime? Well, I'm joined today by my dear friend and colleague, Paul Solosky. Paul has an extraordinary background that he'll tell us a little bit about. And Paul is precisely exactly the person you want to talk to if you're interested in what threats we presently face and what we can expect in the near future of cybercrime. Hey, Paul, welcome to the show. Good afternoon, JT. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm great. Hey, uh, you know, I should say full disclosure to our listeners before we get started. Paul and I have been friends for quite some time, and we actually work together now at Protected by AI. So, Paul, I already know a bit about your background, including that story about the clown, the nun, and the goat you stole in Tijuana. Uh, But that's (laughs) another story for another time. But if you wouldn't mind, let's have the highlights real. Tell our listeners a bit about your background. Who is Paul Solosky? Certainly. So, you know, like many of us, I kind of fell into cybersecurity through a a long and rambling career. I started off as a technical writer, Um, not a a technologist by background or training, uh, but I was good at writing. My, My answer to people were like, well, what does a technical writer do was... I translate engineerese into English. Um, and, and that was my introduction to, to programming and technology and computers. I started off writing technical manuals uh, and requirements manuals for, for large systems. And it was one of the few places that I found that I was one of the few people that had an overarching view of the entire system. You know, programmers work on their little pieces. The engineers work on their pieces. Sure. Uh, but because I was responsible for the documentation across the entire program, kind of gave me the bird's eye view. Well, before you tell us what happened next, when are we talking about? When did you start as a technical writer? Oh, this was way too long ago. <laughs> probably about 25 years ago at least. All right. So you've been around the industry for a while now. You've been watching some of the changes we've over the last 25 years, let's face it, you know, everything has changed and 
And you've sort of had a front row seat to that. And from what you're saying, not just as a technologist, but being able to translate geek into English, right? So a Rosetta Stone. Absolutely. The technology changes that have occurred in the last 25 years, nobody could have predicted. I mean, it has just been, it's a completely different world, which is a lot to say within 25 years. Yeah. Yeah. How many other industries can really say that? I mean, you talk about medicine and law and all those, and of course they've evolved. But when you look at the night and day in technology, it, it still staggers my my imagination, my my recollection. I, I think I told you once I learned to code on an IBM 1620 with Hollerith punch cards back in the 70s. And I was hacking before that in the late 60s, early 70s. And when you look at how much we've seen, even in the last 10 years, 15, 20 years. And so when you left technical writing, wh- where'd you go next? What was after that? I went into a company that was developing network solutions um, and and specifically on the commercial side. Mm. So that is kind of where I first touched real cybersecurity because we were looking at how are you protecting networks. And and give me a date range. About when was that? That was, uh, I know exactly, that was 2000. (laughs) I had just finished up Y2K support, um, again, from a technical writing perspective. And essentially in January of 2000, I went into networking. Wow. You see, you're bringing us back. Y2K brings back for us old timers, bring back some memories. Some of our listeners, I'm sure, were, you know, either not born yet or still toddlers, Y2K. And and I'll tell you, you know, I talked to a lot of my friends, and I think we all agree that Y2K, in a perverse way, helped to put us on the map right? Help to put technology in the front row. It's not just the guys with the pocket protectors working in the basement anymore. But I think that's also when we saw at least the first glimpses of people starting to take cybersecurity seriously. Do you think that's that's true? Yeah, absolutely. It, it was interesting because it was such an unknown. I mean, there were such doomsday scenarios that mm. people were expecting planes to be falling out of the skies. Um, I mean, I heard everything except zombies coming over the wall (laughs) is a result of Y2K. But I think it really put in a forefront how important technology and computers were in our everyday lives and what the impacts could be if those things went wrong. Yeah, you know, I think that's absolutely right. I'm also always struck by the fact that people were almost disappointed when nothing happened, right? That that technologists, that we, the geeks, did our jobs, cybersecurity people did their jobs, and we were successful. It's like, I don't know, being disappointed in the fire department because the building didn't catch fire. And I've always sort of been struck by that, that, you know, people don't take cybersecurity, they don't take these issues as seriously when we're, so we sort of suffer from our own success, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Everybody remembers when things go wrong, but nobody understands how much work and effort goes in behind the scenes for the result to be nothing happens. Yeah, yeah. You know, my my father-in-law spent a career working for the uh, telephone companies and it started out as a lineman. And, you know, he always used to say, no one would come out and like, wow, great job. My telephone works. <laughs> when the lines would go down, people would freak out. The power of the telephone, you know, there's things we count on. And now that cyber has become so integral to our lives, uh, the, the comedian Louis C.K. 
did a, a shtick one time. He said uh, he was on an airplane just when they announced for the first time they had Wi-Fi available on the airplane. And he'd never even heard of this before. No one on the plane had. And they said, we now have Wi-Fi available on the plane. And people were like freaking out. And everyone is starting to log in. And after like, you know, 10 minutes, the flight attendant comes over the PA and says, I'm so sorry, we're having trouble with the connection. The Wi-Fi will be down for the remainder of the flight. And the guy sitting next to him is freaking out. That sucks. And he's getting so mad. <laughs> he says, here's something you didn't even know existed 10 minutes ago. And now you can't live without it, right? And I, I feel like we're seeing the same thing in cyber, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, I liken it to microwaves. You know, people pre-microwave, the microwave was amazing. And now we're still complaining if my food's not hot in 30 seconds. <laughs> Um, you know, now we have the, this massive infrastructure, this ability to store data, go get data, use data, and it, it's unprecedented, you know, from a historical perspective. But boy, if, if the lag is more than four or five nanoseconds, oh, heaven it, forbid. my internet's too slow, and, and this is terrible. How can we live with <laughs> So I didn't mean to derail you. You, you had us at... Uh, you had me at hello. Uh, you had us, <laughs> uh, see, inside joke there for people who watch Jerry Maguire. Uh, so you had us, you were just getting into networking uh, and working with networks. Continue the story, please. Certainly. So we had a, a large group of clients and actually, you know, uh, on 9-11, I was up in Manhattan supporting some of those clients that unfortunately wow. were in the Twin Towers. Bear Stearns uh, was one of our large clients. And living through that, um, it, it was really interesting. Look, you know, we, we were far enough away that no one was impacted, but unfortunately some of our clients were. But the infrastructure impacts that occurred in Manhattan at that time were amazing to me. And having networks go down, having cellular networks go down, kind of really brought some of these types of critical infrastructure issues to my forefront. And I was luckily able to make a career change at that point and went as a contractor to go support Department of Homeland Security specifically within their critical infrastructure areas. And we concentrated at the time on communications. And from that perspective, cyber was a huge piece of that. The, the backbone is the backbone, whether it's telecommunications or digital messaging being transferred. You know, at the time, all of that was considered to be one thing. And that's where I really got my, my first dip into pure cyber protection and critical infrastructure protection. It's funny, you mentioned 9-11. Well, there's nothing funny about 9-11. But when you talk about 9-11, you actually looked at it through a, a different lens, frankly, than I ever have before. When you were talking about how that sort of intersected with issues pertaining to digital assets and, and computing and, and the, that side of the world, you know, I think most of us only think about either the physical implications of security breaches or the cyber. And this is what I tend to think about is sort of bridging the cyber silicon divide, right? And I think we're seeing at least the specter of more of that now as we're talking about attacks of hospitals, of, well, nuclear power plants, of uh, the, the grid, in essence, the banking systems. And we're starting to see that one can leap over into the other 
right? So all arenas are, are now potentially being affected. And so you get involved in cybersecurity and you're doing this work with DOD. Uh, with, with Department of Homeland Security and, and, and DOD. Well, and there's a couple of really good examples, JT, that, that occurred around that time frame that, that really showed that how cyber and the physical were coming together and the potential implications. So one of the things that we worked on was Katrina and uh, the Hurricane Katrina and Rita reconstituting the networks uh, uh, from the cellular aspect in the telecommunication. Aspect. Uh, yeah. and, and what happened was there was a complete destruction of the physical infrastructure that went behind those pieces of, of technology. And, and it was unprecedented. I mean, we used the term, it looked like the hand of God had just wiped areas clean. And the, the impacts that were occurring by just simply not being able to access cellular networks were amazing. The police, the sheriff's departments down there were, were having a hard time communicating with their own deputies, trying to be able to do rescue missions. Um, you had the ability to simply be able to put out information to citizens and saying, this is where you need to go for water and this is where you need to go for, you know, electricity or hospital help. All of this was, was directly being impacted. Now, when that had occurred, Department of Homeland Security was looking at, okay, well, now we have these weaknesses in the infrastructure, and they were very worried about the physical aspects of the infrastructure. So all of a sudden, was there the potential for terrorist activity to occur that could impact, you know, colos and, and other technology hubs? I'm sorry, colos? Co-locations um, where, where you have uh, multiple um, operators with equipment in a single location. And again, this was a time back when we were dealing with the red, yellow, green terrorist alerts. Um, we had just gone into Iraq. So this was still very much at the forefront of, of our thoughts. And then what people were realizing was, well, listen, the upside to the technology is that it, it, it can be self-healing. So if you took out one single location, because it's a network, and data can go from point A to point B, well, it can go one way very quickly, or technically it can go all the way around the world still very quickly, but you know, with a considered lag, there is no single point of failure when it came to networks. Yeah, so you're talking about sort of the early stages of what's now known as a mesh network. Exactly. Yeah, very, very interesting. You know, what you've seen is obviously as we've moved into cloud networks and the self-replication and making sure that there's multiple um, data centers that, you know, where, where my data can be kept in multiple places at the same time. It, it was still very early from how do we protect the networks and how do we look at that? But this was starting to come to the forefront uh, of at least the understanding of how do we need to protect networks and what type of cybersecurity tools will be effective to, to protect this. And, yeah. and now we're talking a lot about resiliency beyond just cybersecurity. 
it, it's interesting, Paul. I'm detecting sort of a theme in your professional life <laughs> where you go from sort of disaster to disaster, or at least potential disaster. We're talking about, you know, 9-2-K, Katrina, uh, the uh, the war in Iraq. You know, we're talking about these issues. And uh, in some ways, I guess it's not surprising, right? Because uh, while I mentioned the field of medicine before, uh, medicine evolves uh, in large part sort of this punctuated equilibrium as a consequence of war. It's horrible to say, but we invented new procedures, new techniques, new mechanisms and modalities during each of the major conflicts that the world has been involved in, right? Uh, you talk about uh, germ theory and and some of that, you know, hygiene goes back to Florence Nightingale and um, the... Uh, Funny enough, I, I, I believe some of, wasn't that some of the British-Russian uh, activity in uh, the Crimea at the time? Crimean War, thank you. It was during the Crimean War, see? You're you're an even more of a, a geek than I am. Congratulations! <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I I was a, a paramedic early in my career, and a lot of the capabilities we had were borrowed from Korea and then from Vietnam. And I, and I think you're seeing the same thing in cyber. As I'm sort of, I, I've never thought about it before, but as I'm tracking with your professional evolution, I'm seeing that responsive to these catastrophes or potential catastrophes that the uh, industry that the perspective is continuing to evolve reflectively and responsively. So anyway, so you get into, and you're doing the hurricanes. Let's run to the end of this because, man, I got a lot of questions for you. So take us through to the rest of the career track. So absolutely. So that's when I really started concentrating on cyber and the other pieces that go into cyber, whether it's um, cyber intelligence or the technology, uh, understanding the tactics that you know our adversaries use. What are the bad guys doing? Where are the bad guys concentrating? Uh, it was able to move into small businesses and kind of wait a minute. You know, I'm not going to let you just sneak past saying cyber intelligence. What you can without getting sent to federal prison. <laughs> Talk to us more <laughs> about cyber intelligence and the work you did there and what that's about. Well, it, you know, everything comes back to trying to understand what the bad guys, and whether that's criminals or nation states, whoever, what is it that they want? How are they trying to get into your networks? Um, what are they learning? How are they diversifying and adapting to the security uh, controls that you start putting in. I mean, it, it's you've alluded to this already. You know, cybersecurity really is a process of building a defense. Then the bad guys learn about the defense, learn how to get around the defense. There's no single silver bullet, um, and then you now have to adapt again to what the bad guys are doing. Um, and that really, from an intelligence perspective, is trying to gather that information so that you can build better security defenses against what the bad guys are doing. You know, that's another really great point, Paul, is from what you're saying, we're, we're playing this constant game of leapfrog where the bad guys always have the advantage to some extent, because once we've created a defense, a mechanism for defeating what they're doing, they leap ahead with something else. And we definitionally have to be responsive to that. Uh, and be able to answer. Do you think that is the optimal way to do things? Do we need to get in front of the curve a little 
Well, the, you know, it, it, we already alluded to this earlier in the conversation. You know, it, it, we've we've been reactive because that is how technology advances, whether it was in medicine or or in cybersecurity or anything else. It's really hard to understand how you would be able to get ahead of the curve, JT, because the bad guys are smart. Uh, you know, they, they're just as motivated. They are just as smart. They're just as educated as the people that are doing defense. Um, you know, the, I think that sometimes people have a tendency to underestimate what the bad guys can do and the resources that they can bring to bear. I mean, you, you know, you had talked earlier from the beginning about um, the, the narco gangs and, and what were they doing to evade uh, law enforcement? Well, they went out and hired contractors. They went out and sent their people to good universities to educate them. So, it, it, it is. It, it would be very hard for me to say we could get ahead of the bad guys. We can try and forecast, but it's because we're dealing with people that are just as smart, just as motivated, and just as educated as we are. You know, that uh, another important point, and let me put a pin in that. We'll get back to it because I really want to hear the rest of your, your professional travels. But what I'd love to get back to is let's talk how do you think that might be being precipitated, being accelerated as a consequence of COVID, some of what we're seeing now? Because when I think about, uh, well, sort of the combination of a couple of factors, right? The uh, the virtualization and people are at home and even people who are gainfully employed and at home, let's face it, nobody is at their table, at their desktop for eight you know, 10 hours a day. And people, uh, one of the big problems we have right now with the virtual workforce is people are moonlighting. Uh, and are they moonlighting in honest occupations or are they hacking? Who the heck knows? But I think you have that. You also have uh, dire economic circumstances all around the world right now as a consequence of COVID. You have a lot of people who are on the beach, who are at home, who don't have any other mechanism for earning and caring for their family. And for them, criminality becomes that much more appealing and interesting. And I think the the other leg on that stool is the democratization of education, right? Now, not only do you have access from anywhere in the world to be able to engage in these behaviors, but you can take courses from, you know, MIT, Stanford, Carnegie Mellon uh, for free and online and pretty much from anywhere. And so as we're basically creating this the means of this talent pool and how many kids are there going to be in, you know, a favela in Brazil who can just go down to their cyber cafe, learn this stuff and be able to do this and work with a criminal enterprise and probably make a darn lot more than they'll work, than they'll make in the local bodega. And so how does this become more appealing all around the world? But anyway, let's get back to that. But first uh, l let's put a bow on it and tell me about the rest of the uh, professional journey. Let, we'll fast forward to the <laughs> to where you are now. <laughs> well, you, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, at that point, um, I got into business management, um, and, and you know, had left some of my technical chops behind and, and worked for a variety of small businesses that concentrated on uh, cybersecurity. Luckily, so I kept I kept my toe in there, and, and I finally did go back. 
uh, and formalized from an education perspective uh, and got my master's in digital forensics. And it was interesting because I, I went to a mentor of mine and I said, listen, I, I know I need to get my master's degree, but do I get an MBA or do I go get something that's more technology based? And my, my mentor was really good about, listen, Paul, he's like, MBAs are really good if you want to know how to talk to your CFO and to your finance staff in their own language. But he's like, but if you really want to be able to support your customers' missions, to be able to understand where your teams need support, what they're doing, where the industry is going, then go technical. Um, so I've never, I've never regretted that. And and then he said, you know, and if you really want to do that, you can always go take a finance course somewhere and be able to talk to your CFO. So, you know, when we look back now, I think you might have been ahead of the curve because now more and more MBA programs are starting to introduce some insight into technology. I mentioned I was, uh, I taught in the MBA programs at several universities. And why was I there? Because I had a geek orientation, right? I had more of a technical background. And while I taught courses on strategy and leadership and these sorts of things, what I talked about, like in strategy, in leader strategy, I talked about uh, the advantage you get as a consequence of leveraging technology, uh, which is, you know, since Adam Smith has been one of the major uh, determinants or factors that contributes to an organization's success, uh, Adam Smith talked about it in The Wealth of Nations. And as to leadership, uh, the point I was making when I was teaching those courses is leadership is not ubiquitous. It isn't generic. Uh, leading, a, all due respect, leading people who are, you know, digging a ditch versus people who are uh, working at the Manhattan Project, you, you have a very different perspective you need to bring to bear. And in fact, future episodes, we'll talk about those things. But uh, again, uh, <laughs> back to you. Uh, so now we have, you've, you've completed your master's in forensics, and now you're uh, working more on the business side, but with that technological orientation. Absolutely. So, so what I was able to do is concentrate on how do we solve our customers' problems? How do we make sure that our customers are able to meet their missions? Um, and, and have done that now successfully, I, I like to think, for a variety of different government customers that all you know, live and breathe in this space. Um, and then I eventually was able to come and work with you, which is you know, where, where, where I get to end that journey. Um, and, and, you know, th this is where it's been a lot of fun is that, you know, we, we are able to have these types of discussions where, where we are able to understand and talk about customer missions and how important that is to our national security and to any nation's security uh, from that aspect. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm, Glad you brought it to there because uh, Canada, we know each other for a while and I hadn't really thought about it that way. But I think that uh, for a lot of our listeners, you don't really think about bringing a business lens, a business mindset to serving a government customer, right? Uh, most people think of the government as uh, either in-house, uh, its own talent, which is you and I both know totally untrue. There are, uh, at the risk of speaking out of school, uh, I'll tell all listeners, there are several uh, major intelligence agencies 
that their analysts, up to 95% of them come from the private sector. So there's a, a real big public-private partnership going on. But what they, I think our listeners also, many of them don't appreciate or understand or, or realize is that they, these organizations, these government entities still feel, truly feel an obligation as fiduciaries to the taxpayer. They feel responsible for government funding and money and project management and those sort of things are no different in government than they would be for a Fortune 50 company. Uh, In fact, um, uh, I don't know if you know this, uh, the field of uh, project management, I know you're a a PMP and and you do a lot of work in project management. Uh, Did you know, (laughs) did you know, the field of project management actually comes from NASA and when they stood up the original Apollo programs, they needed uh, to be able to professionalize it and get their hands around being able to build these capabilities. And that was sort of that intersection with with government. No, I did not know that. That's interesting. And I know NASA has been at the forefront um, of a lot of those types of efforts. Um, their work in their research into... Uh, safety and some other things from an engineering perspective, uh, I, I believe, are, are pretty much now considered to be the, the the pillars of where a lot of other engineering uh, schools and, and big engineering firms take their lessons from is what they've done from a safety perspective. Yeah, well, and uh, it should actually come as no surprise. The way it started was uh, a young, ambitious president from Massachusetts famously said, by the end of this decade, we will send a man to the moon and people forget the last half, which was the most important, return him safely to earth. And and everyone, yeah. And they said, well, how the hell are we going to do that? And, you know, the technology, nobody knew how to do that. But then on top of that, how are we going to coordinate and manage and integrate these, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of people and millions and millions of dollars that are going to be invested and uh, and that was the thing you left out about your background is, and I think is important to the conversation, is you not only bring a perspective from forensics, uh, computer forensics, from your experience, but you also pursued uh, certifications, education in project management specifically to be able to help clients meet and and even, I don't know, anticipate and and succeed in any of those endeavors. For those who don't know what a PMP is, what is that? So the PMP is a, a, a professional certification for project managers. It's a project management professional, I believe. It's been a long time. I have, have to <laughs> actually read the words out rather than just the acronym. Hey, I got a PhD. I'm not always sh- remember what it stands for. <laughs> oh, I know. Uh, you know, we, we've had these conversations in, in my wife, hates it at times. She's like, you will have an entire conversation and 75% of it is nothing but acronyms. <laughs> um, and, and you get to the point where you forget what the heck, the, you know what the acronym means, but not how to spell it out. <laughs> um, but what the PMP really did for me was teach you as a project manager about managing against risk. Um, you know, there's formulas and you can do the math and everything else. But what I really took away from it was identifying risk early and managing to that risk and making sure that your team understood 
what the risk was and why you were managing them to it. And, and whether that risk was financial or, you know, uh, the timeline or all the other pieces that can go into that. But that really, for me, was the lessons that I was able to take away from it. You know, could, could I retake my test tomorrow and pass? Absolutely not. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's interesting to me how consistent that is when you're talking about managing risk and now from very different perspectives, managing the risk inherent to the projects, managing risk from the cyber standpoint, managing risk as in at that sort of more macro level, helping the government uh, uh, detect cyber intruders doing cyber intel, which which sort of brings us back to the, the post- proposition I postulated before about, you know, how these, these threats are growing. You know, according to the last figures I saw, Cybercrime is now costing the world economy somewhere in the neighborhood of about $6 trillion every year, $6 trillion annually. To put that in some perspective, that's 20 times more than the income from narcotics. So we're talking about a massive industry here. In fact, if it was measured as GDP, that would make cybercrime the world's third largest economy, right after the U.S. and China. So I'm wondering, is this just a problem and these threats that cybercrime now poses, and considering, I think we'll agree, the the sort of explosion of potential cyber criminals, is this just a problem for governments and the biggest companies? Who should be worried about this? Who should care about this? Well, everybody, if you use a computer, you need to care. Um, I had been thinking about this earlier, and the only people that don't need to worry about this live completely off the grid. Um, and do not have a computer and never connect to the internet. So the Amish are cool, right? The Amish are pretty safe. <laughs> you know, they do use banks, so there's okay. there's a point there. So you know, I, I had thought a little bit about this in work that I've been on uh, concentrating on lately has been dealing with cryptocurrency and securing cryptocurrency. There were the if you took the the nine largest crypto hacks. So this is literally nine separate crimes, and, and it goes from 2014 to now. But the top nine had a total value of $2.9 billion being stolen. Wow. So over eight years, nine crimes, so almost a crime a year, and wow. Total value was $2.9 billion. And, and just last month... And I think it's either the second or the first largest now. It was valued somewhere, depending on where crypto is worth at the day. It was one hack of six hundred and fifteen million to six hundred and twenty million dollars. That was a single crime. So you know, we talk about the thousands of hacks that occur, and you know, thousands of potential intrusions or attempted intrusions a day, and how many actually are effective over a year, but just nine, and this was just cryptocurrency being stolen, had a value of $2.9 billion. I was, I, I was amazed. Um, it, it, there's thousands of these hacks that have occurred. So, you know, it, it, if you put together the totality, you, you're right. You're talking in billions to trillions of dollars. Uh, let me interject. You know, the, what, what that really makes me think about the the bank robber, famous bank robber, Willie Sutton, 
was once asked, why do you rob banks? And he said, well, that's where the money is. Exactly. And yeah, I think not just with, with crypto, but you're seeing, you know, everyone talks about how data is the new oil, data is the primary asset, uh, you know, the world has gone cyber. Uh, for many organizations, what astounds me continuously is that no company would think about leaving their doors unlocked and the register open when they go home at night. And yet they fail in their duty so consistently as data fiduciaries, right? As securing that data, which we know now is their greatest asset. And I think we have these direct crimes that you're talking about, and and I don't mean to minimize those at all. But what I'm thinking about that $2.9 billion over the last eight years, I'm wondering how does that stack up against total losses, do you think, as a consequence of cybercrime? Oh, I think it's a drop in the bucket. Wow. You know, if, if you start thinking about how much data could be worth. So, you know, there, there's easy things to put dollars about. If, if you are developing a COVID vaccine and the intellectual property and the research dollars that have gone into developing a single COVID vaccine, that, that's billions of dollars uh, alone. And, and the total value of some of those types of discoveries, you know, potentially tens of billions of dollars in all of those targets for cyber criminals. Well, you, you, you can look at those large ones and now you can take that all the way down to small businesses that, you know, have been hijacked, that somebody has come in and, you know, ha- has run an attack on them. They've frozen their, their capability of doing business and it's ransomware. And they're like, you know, if you give me a thousand dollars, I'll let you. Isn't that just the big guys? If I, if I run a small mid-sized company, I don't have to worry about this stuff, right? Oh, absolutely not. Um, really? The, mid, the mid-size and even the smaller businesses are the ones that are, I think, most susceptible to this because it's it's so quickly damaging. You know, if you're even, you know, my dentist, if my dentist can't access his data files for a day or two, he, he, you know, he, A, could be in violation of several different HIPAA laws and, and, and other government regulations. But if he can't see his clients, if he cannot get access to their records as a small business person, you know, that can be devastating. So are you going to write a quick check for a thousand dollars just be able to get just to be able to get back up and running? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and you bring up a collateral. Another important point is as dangerous as the robbers are, the regulators are also a danger. So if you get hacked, there are several, uh, as you uh, uh, were mentioning, we have HIPAA, but we also have the, uh, well, it depends on where you are in the world and where you are in the country, but there are just, you know, a spate of other laws that you now have to hold to. And there's pending legislation to hold all companies responsible as data fiduciaries. And so now, you know, I, uh, I got robbed and now, uh, of my data, am I now responsible under GDPR or the consumer, uh, California consumer privacy act or any of these other regulations where now second to that, I get hit with this massive fine, which for like GDPR, some of these things, uh, California, Consumer Privacy Act, which, by the way, uh, pertains to anyone who even has a customer in California. So even if you think, well, I'm not a California business, 
if you have an online presence and even one of your customers is in California, guess what? And same with New York, same with Michigan. There's a whole bunch of laws and, and federal legislation, as I said, is pending. But now you got to say to yourself, well, hell, not only did I get hit, do I have to reconstruct, reconstitute my data? But now on top of that, to your point, I've got to write this check to the bad guys, which is galling. And then the cops are going to come and say, and guess what? Here's a fine. And between those things, you know, how does it not break you if you're a small or medium business? It's a great point. Oh, absolutely. And then you're, you could be responsible for the data monitoring for those customers. So there's another check that you have to write yeah. um, that you're responsible for. So it, it, it can, you know, for small and, and mid-sized businesses, I mean, the, these are major financial hits that you could incur because you didn't do some of the simple things that you would need to do, uh, what the you know courts would consider to be reasonable steps to protect your customers' data. Yeah. You know, um, in saying that, the theme of our show uh, is tomorrow, today. What we like to do is everyone always talks about in these conversations what was and what is. I love to talk about with really smart people, really knowledgeable people about what's going to be. So let me ask you, left unchecked, how bad do you think it gets? Paint us a picture, the the sort of Dickensian ghost of Christmas yet to come. Oh, the, the, the absolute worst case scenario for me is the ability of people to impact critical infrastructure, turn off electric plants, um, stop the water from flowing, or even worse, making sure that the water still flows, but now it's not safe. Um, you know, the, cyber is such a part of the daily things that we need to function as a society. Um, that if we don't protect those parts and pieces, um, it, we, it, we could easily go back to the Stone Age in many ways. I mean, it, it's just that important. Wow. From a, from a, you know, for, for me as a citizen, um, you know, as a consumer, uh, you know, you could spend days trying to fix what a bad guy has done with your credit report. I mean, it, it's bad enough trying to just contact you know, my, my cellular carrier for them to fix a problem. Well, if, if there's a thousand, 10,000, a hundred thousand customers that have all been impacted yeah. because somebody screwed with their account and we're all trying to call the one same 800 number, I mean, you can spend, you know, weeks of your life trying to just get that one little piece back in, in operation. I think you're so right. And I mean, even if you go beyond and I'm going to ask you to define uh, critical infrastructure and what you mean by that. But even if you extend beyond that to something that seems innocuous, you know, for some reason, FTD floors come to mind. Look, if you interfere with their system and they're unable to engage in business, you know, I remember when the NotPetya virus hit and it initially hit Maersk and then it hit Merck and it hit yeah. uh, FedEx and hit all these entities and ended up costing them collectively, I, I, I don't even remember what the number was, but I know it was in excess of a billion dollars collectively, uh, I seem to recall. When you talk about how these these viruses, these attacks tend to metastasize, right? They're no longer just limited or delimited to your PC, your machine. They're in your network. They're through your network and ostensibly, potentially, anything your network is connected to. And 
that's why they call it a network, right? It's because yeah. it's connected. Exactly. So, so what industries and sectors, other than than the sort of, uh, a, a, and I'll ask you to start by defining for us what you mean by critical infrastructure. In addition to that, which industries and sectors should be most concerned? So from a critical infrastructure, uh, the, the definition really is what are the pieces that make society work? Um, that allow the lights to stay on, like I said, the water to flow, the gas to show up at the gas pump so that your car can work. Um, you know, these are pieces of business because this is almost all privately owned that the government has determined has to work effectively for normal life to occur. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to what businesses really need to, to worry about this, I, you know, I would say again, you know, everyone. But what's what I'm seeing now is, you know, and I'll go back to cryptocurrency. More and more businesses are now using cryptocurrency, uh, are accepting cryptocurrency. Um, so I think that anyone that is dealing with that has to treat it like it's cash. Yeah. And, you know, the safeguards that banks put in place, that stores put in place. I mean, you know, I can't go to McDonald's at 10 o'clock at night and use a $50 bill because they want to protect the cash that they have in the store. Mm. So I, I'm seeing that really is an area that people need to start thinking more of. And that in the future, I think there's going to be more and more attacks against. Because again, it, it literally is bank remote bank robbing. I can sit in my chair anywhere in the world and I can go steal money from anywhere else in the world if they're using cryptocurrency in an unsecured way. Wow, fascinating. You know, uh, although I must, I'm compelled to say, as someone who's very much invested in your continued well-being, stop making midnight runs to McDonald's. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I heard. That's, yeah. Yeah, that's what the kids are saying these days. Yeah, that's the ticket. So let me... um, uh, before I go into the n- next question or the next topic, um, let me preface by saying, and our listeners probably don't, but you know that I did uh, a postdoc uh, out of all places at Moscow State University in Russia. And I say that because I, I want to make clear, I'm not down on Russia in any way. Uh, I love the Russian people. I love my time there. Uh, some of my best friends are Russian. <laughs> Actually, uh, my heritage is is Russian. Uh, I my people come from the Russian Polish border, and so uh, you know when you go back to my not even great grandparents, but to my grandparents who were born in this village. That it depends on what year it is, whether it was Poland or Russia. It's right there. What is now Ukraine, actually. And so uh, I, I say that because. Look, it's no secret that much of the state-sponsored cyber attacks that we're experiencing now have come from Russia. So how do you think the sanctions imposed on, I'm not, I'm not going to say Russia anymore, on Putin, on Vladimir Putin, who is really, let's all agree, it's not the Russian people who are doing this, uh, engaging this horrific nightmare that is commonly known as the Ukraine war or genocide. It's Vladimir Putin. How do you think the sanctions we've imposed on Putin, whether from the U.S., the rest of the world, do you think that's going to have any impact on the cyber threat space? I guess the question is, you know, a couple of can be answered in a couple of different ways. So one, you know, the sanctions that are occurring and how they're impacting 
the Russian economy? Are we going to see more activity based on economics? Well, and part of what I'm asking, Paul, is retribution, retaliation. Look, Putin can't send missiles or drones at the U.S. No. That'll be the end of things, uh, mutually assured destruction. But clearly he has felt at liberty of cyber attacks. SolarWinds uh, was, uh, began in Russia, right? We all know that. And it was targeted and intended. A lot of the massive hacks and cyber attacks we've seen over the last decade have come from Russia. Do we see him as spinning up the IRA, the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg, and telling him, aha, and pointing them at the U.S.? Or not just the U.S., but the rest of the West and the rest of the world that has participated in those sanctions. Do you, do you see that happening? I, I actually, I don't. I see the threats being made. I mean, the Russian government is very good about saber rattling. You know, we how many times have we heard about nuclear weapons, you know, the Russian capability with nuclear weapons in the last two weeks? I do think there is the understanding that, you know, that, Anything that occurs outside of Ukraine is an escalation. And the Russians are going to have to be very careful about escalating from that perspective. A a cyber attack against the United States is opening them up to retaliation. You know, the the U.S. government has the best hackers in the world. Um, And and that's a well-known fact. And I think everybody would be very careful about opening that Pandora box because you're going to have retaliation. Yeah. And I think what most people aren't aware of is that while we do have some of the best hackers in the world, I think most people aren't aware that uh, a good many of them work for government, right? U.S. Cyber Command employs some of the best hackers on the planet, the best cyber warriors. I I wouldn't even call them uh, hackers necessarily. But, and I'm going to somewhat disagree with you. And that's why I love having these conversations. <laughs> uh, I, I hate talking to people who agree with me about everything because then it's just boring. But, you know, we've seen Russia overtly use cyber as a weapon against Ukraine in the past. This isn't unprecedented. And so using it against Ukraine, absolutely. Yep. Would they use these weapons, you know, and, and frankly, we, and whether it was us and the Israelis or whomever it was, uh, have attacked, you know, everything from nuclear power plants and centrifuges. So this is not unprecedented. And so what I'm wondering, even more insidiously, right, uh, one of the deals Vladimir Putin has with the hackers uh, it, who are in Russia, and by the way, I know this from my friends who are <laughs> Russian hackers, basically he has two rules. Rule one is nothing in the homeland, Yep. right? Nothing. You can't turn your energies toward Russia. And if you do, heaven help you, right? And not even heaven will help you. And rule two is you act in what Putin would term a patriotic fashion. So you attack, not just do you not attack Russia, but you primarily attack non-affiliated Russian entities and organizations. So while Putin might not turn his his version of cyber command against us. And I tend to agree with you on that. I'm wondering, does he give license to, you know, in, in ages past, we called them pirates or privateers, right? And the, the British government and different uh, governments around the world 
would literally sanction and authorize people to be pirates. And do you see that potentially happening coming out of Russia? No, I, I, again, I don't. And I think it's because what you, you've already said, everybody knows that if those organizations do something, you know, if those private criminal enterprises try those types of attacks, we're going to treat it like it was sanctioned by the Russian government. And they, you know, in some ways, they've extended their capabilities, and the Chinese do the same thing, perhaps even better, mm-hmm. where they've extended their government capabilities by sanctioning these criminal groups to go in this type of behavior with the rules. You can't come back to us. Everything has to be out, you know, and again, from a patriotic perspective. Sure. But they've been doing this for so long, and it's so well known, they've blurred their own lines. Now, where they were able to say, you know, there there was this degree of separation, I think they've actually lost some of that ability to say there's a separation. So if something occurs, the I, I think Western governments will treat it just as if it was fully sanctioned by the Russian government. Interesting. Yeah. So if uh, it's analogous to what you're saying is if it's state-sponsored terrorism, effectively, yep. whether it's kinetic or digital, we will still treat it the same way, potentially. Very interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. Um, But that also, I think, brings us back full circle to sort of the opening I had and the question that I had posed to you. Do you see the potential rise of organized cybercrime? Do you see, if we're not going to have people acting on the behalf of governments, do we see some of these cybercriminals starting to come together to mutual advantage. Some of them starting to to coalesce, which they're already sharing code and they're sharing scripts and and these sort of things. But when do we see, you know, someone the, the, the I don't know the the analogous institution to one of the drug cartels who says, you know what, instead of freelancing and just hacking and trying to get into stuff, here's a regular paycheck, frankly, and here's benefits, and here's you know, gainful employment. And by the way, oh, who was the uh, uh, big drug kingpin who uh, they just caught a couple of years ago? Um, his expression was uh, silver or lead. And basically that was the job offer, right? You know, he'll pay you extraordinarily well or he'll kill you. And that's not beyond the pale for some of these cyber criminals. I mean, there's millions, billions of dollars at stake. So if I'm you know, in the Russian mob right now, and I see the writing on the wall and I go around a bunch of these hackers and say, you know, here's a thought you can hack for me or I'll hack you into little pieces. Uh, I think they're going to get a lot of recruits. Uh, and when they're looking at, and if you hack for me, here's the carrot as opposed to an actual stick. And to me, when I look at the field, I see some of this starting up and particularly, and and this is, you know, let me open it to you. When you marry that to what I was talking about when I think about how uh, COVID has served as a catalyst to moving more people into this sphere, into this domain, do you see the potential rise of organized cybercrime? And what does that portend? Uh, Absolutely. And I agree with you. I think we've been seeing this occur now. And some of the traditional organized crime groups have already moved into this space, mm. but they've married that with you know the traditional organized crime 
uh, money makers, you know, whether it's smuggling drugs or human trafficking, uh, protection rackets, all, all of those physical pieces. Um, they definitely had moved into adding some cyber capabilities to their, their money makers. Now, what I what would be interesting to see is, do you start divesting yourself of some of these physical crimes because they're easier to catch at times? Certainly, um, you know, the trail of evidence can be easier to follow. Um, you can stop drug shipments, uh, trace those back. Um, there's a large investment that is lost every time a drug shipment is stopped uh, by law enforcement. And that isn't the same with cybercrime. Mm -hmm. So if you can start making the same type of money, but actually with less investment and safer, why wouldn't you give up some of the, the more highly risky? Sure. Yeah. The, the higher risk crimes for these. And, you know, the laws haven't caught up the same way either. So are, are you going to go to jail for as long a term for stealing, you know, cryptocurrency, which you could make, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars on as you were if you got caught with 10 pounds of heroin? You know, it's a, another very, very important point, uh, which, by the way, it reoccurred to me. The person I was thinking about, the drug kingpin, was Pablo Escobar. Oh, yeah. Well, and how'd that end? Yeah, Plato Oplomo, uh, you know, uh, Plato Oplomo, silver or lead. Um, but, you know, you you make another very, very important point, And this sort of circles back also when you were talking about risk management, right? If you're taking risk management seriously as a criminal enterprise and organization, we know that cyber criminals act with mere impunity. Uh, who here hasn't gotten some phishing message in the last day, yeah. right? Certainly in the last week, in the last month. And why are they doing it? Because, you know, that's where the money is. But they also know that they're, it, it's virtually unconsequated, especially if you're doing this internationally. If you are uh, trying to attack me from, you know, Nigeria uh, on some sort of a scam, even if you're caught, so what? And it's also because cyber is so malleable uh, and so scalable, right? You can attack uh, with your phishing message hundreds, thousands, millions of people. You don't need a lot of hits, right? If you go into the liquor store with a gun, if they only have 50 bucks, you're going to do the same time in jail as if you went in to rob that liquor store and it had $10,000, which anyone listening, liquor stores never have $10,000. <laughs> <laughs> don't rob liquor stores. But, you know, if, if I go to a to try to in, hack someone's system, if I try to rob a bank, whatever it is, uh, I'm doing it at distance. I have virtually no exposure, no risk to your point. Uh, I think that's a very important point. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the few criminals that have actually been captured uh, that, that were from an international perspective, it's occurred one of two ways. One, they were tricked literally into going to a country that has extradition. So there's been a couple. I mean, it's the old, hey, you want a new car? Come on down to the police station. <laughs> um, and, and the others are definitely where we have, you know, good extradition treaties with those with those countries. So, you know, and I'll take the reverse. If I decided that I wanted to go, you know, steal 
Bitcoin from Russian countries. And the Russian government today came to the United States and said, hey, we want to extradite, you know, this guy back to Russia. I don't think that we're going to be really up for sending somebody in that direction. And it's obviously even worse if you live in a country that, you know, if, if you're in Russia or China or North Korea or Iraq, you are, I'm sorry, Iran, you are not getting extradited out of that country back to the United States, no matter what you've done. Or China, for that matter, right? China has a non-extradition policy with the United States for Chinese nationals. Uh, but you also, uh, another important point, to, collateral to what you'd brought up, who even investigates these things? I mean, if I'm, you know, nobody cares, frankly. If if I get a phishing attack right now, who do I even report it to? FTC, the Federal Trade Commission doesn't care. The FCC doesn't care. The FBI surely doesn't care. My local law enforcement, and it's their jurisdiction, they're, you know, a six-person police or force. What are they able to do. And so, you know, the vast majority of these crimes don't even go reported, let alone investigated, let alone prosecuted. And then when you tie all that in, there's always that financial calculus. So, you know, if a DA, an attorney general, a a federal prosecutor were to look at these things, are they going to go after and try to, you know, prosecute someone because they stole 10 grand from your small business? Now it's devastating to you, but you know, they're looking at it and saying, Ugh, I'm going to spend $2 million to extradite someone and to try a case to help, you know, because someone took 10 grand from you. It's horrible, but that's the calculus, I think, at the end of the day. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, the FBI and Department of Homeland Security, uh, especially CISA, wants you to report these things so that they can track it. But it's a tsunami sure. of, of these thefts that are occurring. So you're right. How do I... How do I make sure that my one little crime is prosecuted? It, it probably isn't. Uh, now, maybe they can try it to a larger criminal enterprise, and it's it's one of thousands of cases that they're using to build one one you know large case against them. But that is the other piece. It, it's there's so many of these things occurring. It's so anonymous. I mean, it's not that I would say that it's, you know, the perfect crime, sure, but it's getting to be pretty near perfect from, from the criminal's perspective. Well, and you raised the, the point of anonymity. The internet, we tend to forget, was built for anonymity. It was built for people to just be able to access from anywhere. Everyone who has an email account, uh, you don't have to have one that has any identification or any attachment to you. And- what we're laying on top of that is even investigators used to live by the maxim of follow the money. Uh, but with cryptocurrency, even that's being obfuscated uh, to the point of being almost impossible. Not quite impossible, but almost impossible. Yeah. So that said, Paul, all that considered, what do we do? You know, what can companies do starting today, right now, do you think, to better protect yourself? Uh, and I've gotten on this soapbox before, dollar for dollar, the best thing that any company can do is invest in cyber training for their employees. Day one, when they come into the company, and I don't care, again, if you're a dentist's office or you're a Fortune 50 company, um, the best thing that you can do is make your employees informed employees. 
because that is actually where most of the attacks are occurring. It's through tricking employees, through phishing employees, through stealing their credentials. The, the bad guys are getting into networks. So I, I've always felt, you know, initial training, continuous training to, to protect your employees is the best dollar that you can spend for cybersecurity. Sure. You know, don't open that attachment. Uh, don't right, respond to that email, uh, change your darn password. And please, anyone who's listening, password one, two, three, or password are not a password. In fact, on uh, I was reading a report the other day and it lists the top, uh, I forget if it was 50 or 75 or 100 passwords that are most commonly used. You don't think a hacker is going to run through those? And in fact, they're not even going to. They're going to build a script that can run through all those common passwords in 10 seconds. And then people also who are falling prey to the domino effect, right? I use the same password uh, for every single thing I have. Well, if, if people find that, and and to Paul's point, there are easy methods. You know, even if you, um, uh, uh, well, I'll give away one of my tricks, is you use your password, whatever the URL name is, and your password, uh, and something that's unique to it. So, you know, if it's Sony.com, I'll have Sony.com, my password, which is pretty convoluted uh, and untraceable. And do I have, you know, even a word? There, there was this XC, XKCD cartoon that uh, I love. And it talks about sort of crypto nerds and talk about how on the one they were talking about all these 64-bit random blah, blah, blah. And here's what you come up for a password as opposed to the other one was saying, how about you say, you know, crazy at horse? Well, no one's going to ever be able to extract that and be able to figure that out. And so the the bigger point I think you're making, Paul, which I agree with absolutely, is not to just take this advice, more importantly, to get serious about this, get educated, have your employees understand that they're effectively leaving the doors open and the registers unlocked. And they have a, while you have a duty as a company, as a data fiduciary, they have a duty to help you protect your digital assets. And what can you do to help them? What other advice, recommendation, practices, services, resources, anything you'd recommend for our listeners to start using to better protect themselves? Well, I think the other the other piece in that now is better identity management. So, and there's a large variety of of tools that that are available. You know, the government went to um, the the PIV card, the the private information card. So, I think that companies need to do a better job and invest more in protecting the identity and ensuring they know who is entering into their systems, and, and whether that's a token or a card or, or anything along those lines. I think that is another easy win for companies and a good investment from their perspective uh, to help protect their networks. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, that sort of brings us to the end, Paul, except uh, I always open up the opportunity now, you know, it, it's time for shameless self-promotion. Is there a service, a product, a book, a cause Anything would benefit our listeners to know more about you'd like to share? You know, one of the things I would say is um, right now, uh, I'll talk about a cause. 
anything that people can do to support the people of Ukraine right now, whether it's donating to the Red Cross or some of the organizations, I, I think that's that that is something we really need to take a look at. Um, the the situation over there is horrible. Uh, it, it is just a, a massive attack against the civilians uh, of the country. And, and what is occurring there really needs uh, our support to help the people, the refugees that are occur, uh, you know, that are exiting the country. I mean, it's it's a, a huge percentage of the population is is having to leave because um, they're where they live, where they work, is simply being you know destroyed and wiped off the map. So that that's my 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 latest cause. No, I appreciate that. And, you know, not that that needs any context, but to offer our listeners some context, we're recording this on April 28th, 2022. And no one knows yet what's going to happen, or at least at the time of recording this, no one knows what's going to happen uh, in the Ukraine. Might hostilities end today, tomorrow? They might. But those challenges are not going to go away for a generation. You know, what Paul's talking about, uh, you've all seen the videos. You've all seen what's going on uh, in these once beautiful cities, this once beautiful area, the country that my ancestors come from, it turns out. This is, you know, Germany right after World War II, Japan just after World War II. And you may have some animus for Russia, but I don't think anyone bears any ill will toward the people of Ukraine with the possible accession of Rand Paul, but that's a whole nother conversation <laughs> at the time. Uh, maybe Donald Trump, but other than that. Uh, but by and large, you know, these are, are people who have been devastated. To Paul's point, there are, last I saw, 5 million refugees who have left their country. The number one industry, by the way, or, or one of the leading industries in Ukraine, uh, software developers and people who work in the cyber arena. And so I would, you know, implore any of you who can do anything to help them. Uh, I'll tell you, uh, as a company, we are committed to being able to do something. Stay tuned for more on that. And we'll talk a little bit about more uh, about how we're getting involved and, and what we're doing. But, you know, to be able to help people in these dire circumstances, I think, is, is uh, heaven's work. So anyway, Paul, anything else? Before we close out here, no, thank you very much for the opportunity. This, uh, as you promised, it would be fun. I was a little <laughs> nervous coming into it, and it absolutely has been fun. I, I've really enjoyed myself. That's because you've been drinking scotch the whole time. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Paul, thank you so much. It was great having you. We're going to post a couple of resources and references on the website about the show, uh, about some of the uh, things Paul. Uh, spoke about and we'll look forward to having you join us for the next conversation and we will i promise have paul back sometime in the near future paul thanks again thanks jt thank you to all of our listeners for joining us for this episode we really appreciate your support and hope you enjoyed the conversation we just wanted to take this opportunity to remind everyone that the tomorrow today podcast is a non-profit venture committed to bringing awareness to important social issues. Funding for this episode, like all our episodes, has been provided by Protected by AI and CodeLock. Protected by AI develops leading-edge solutions at the intersection of technology and psychology. Check out some of the ways Protected by AI can revolutionize your organization 
by visiting protectedby.ai, protectedby.ai. And CodeLock? CodeLock is a game-changing software security solution that the U.S. Department of Homeland Security has said, and I'm quoting you, quote, CodeLock appears to have the capability to stop the most sophisticated criminal malware." end quote. You can learn more about CodeLock by visiting CodeLock.it, CodeLock.it. And uh, yeah, thanks again for tuning into the conversation. And please do check out Protected by AI and CodeLock. Tomorrow Today is only possible because of their sponsorship and because you're listening. And be sure to visit us at our website, tomorrowtoday.show, where you'll find show notes, links, and most importantly, ways to subscribe to the show. You can also give us a review, leave us a message, or tell us what topics you'd like us to address in upcoming episodes. Thanks to all of you again for joining the conversation and for helping us make a better tomorrow today.